Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hague Diplomacy Podcast. My name is Elon Madhavji and I will be your host. Now I know every episode I start by saying today we're going to do something special and to me it feels every time like we are, but I promise today we're really doing something special. Those of you who tuned in last time will remember the wonderful episode we had with Tristan Naylor of LSE where we unpacked his piece that was called All That's Lost, The Hollowing of Summit Diplomacy in a Socially Distant World. And this came from the Hague Journal of Diplomacy's Diplomacy After COVID Forum. And there we talked about the consequences of social distancing in diplomacy and what the lack of physicality actually does for international summits and uh, diplomatic negotiations. And while that academic take provided a lot of color in terms of theory and applying that to our diplomatic world, what we're trying to do today is, is develop further on those ideas and we're actually going to be applying sort of the, the journal's appetite to engage with diverse practitioners of diplomacy as well. And so to do so and to build on Tristan's and the forum's ideas, today I'm being joined by two special guests. And they also happen to be practitioners of diplomacy, and they've had their, their, their fingers in all areas of that pie. And today, Yimin Wu and Rebecca Weber Gaudiosi will join us. And they'll be using their own personal experiences within the world of diplomacy to speak to how COVID has actually impacted its practice. And so to give you first some background, Yimin, amongst many other things, has uh, represented Singapore with the permanent mission to the UN in New York, and currently is the deputy permanent representative of Singapore to the WTO, World Trade Organization, and WIPO. Uh, she also conducts workshops on negotiations and diplomacy at universities and, and ministries of foreign affairs. Rebecca has a completely different background coming from science, as far as I understand it well. And I think the science to diplomacy is always a, a really cool shift and probably for another episode. She's actually represented the United States at the UN from 2006 to 2014 and was responsible for the United States' engagement in over 25 environment and sustainable development multilateral organizations and related negotiations, including the UN Environmental Program and the Montreal Protocol. So uh, amongst all that, and in addition to that, she also spends her time also doing negotiations workshops for diplomats and business professionals. So today with us, we have a diverse audience and of course, two diverse guests. So thank you so much, both of you for joining. Uh, quickly, Yimin, how are you doing uh, and um, how have things been? <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's lovely to be here and to share where we have been on uh, diplomacy, especially in this era of COVID where things have moved virtually. So as you can imagine, things have changed quite a bit for how we do diplomacy on the ground and, and happy to share more here. Um, over to you, Rebecca. I will also say thank you so much for having us today. We're excited to be here. And um, it's a really interesting both challenge and opportunity, I think, moving forward, what we've had to to come up with creatively. Thank you, thank you so much for that little introduction on, on, on your mindset coming in. And um, maybe I can add my own, you know, my mindset coming in certainly starts with where this all started. And what I'd like to begin with is, I wanna take you back to when this started in March. You know, I, it, it, it almost seems ridiculous to think that March, the next March is almost three months away. Uh, and yet the last one is something we're still, <laughs> recovering from. I know for me, life was completely different and I'm sure that is the case for everyone. So considering where you were back in March, uh, when this initially really started to unfold for us, um, how did you and your colleagues, you know, in the world of diplomacy and foreign affairs, how did you first perceive that initial wave? 
So maybe I'll start off. What's interesting for us, especially because of, from coming from Singapore, is that we had a bit of a preview of what was to come. As you can imagine, COVID-19 hit Asia um, hard first before it moved over to where we are right now in Europe. So we were anticipating and in, in, in a way getting ready for it by updating our own internal plans. For example, is there a need for any of our staff to go home uh, first? You know, what would be the, the backup plans for support if necessary? But on the diplomatic front, you would also find that the, many of the international organizations, for example, the WTO, WIPO, they also set up their own health task force so as to ensure that certain um, requirements of seating were taken care of, cleaning was taken care of. And so it's good to know that many of the organizations were also working to be on top of the situation. And similarly, we had group chats among uh, many of us in, in the diplomatic community, what each of our different missions were doing. So for example, some were saying that, should we move to having alternate day schedules for staff or should we go you know, alternate at weekly schedules for staff. So these were sort of the conversations that were going on initially in March. So now, Rebecca, I want to bring you in here because because Yumin has mentioned uh, not only you know in a personal sense how how it's it's affected all of us, but that immediate reaction by you know these multilateral organizations, these diplomatic bodies. How do they you know continue to do what they do despite the circumstance? So. Uh, in that initial phase, what were the biggest challenges from what you saw? What were those biggest challenges for the multilateral organizations for the practice of diplomacy, considering how it usually operates? Yeah, thank you. Um, so you've, you've already kind of, there are a lot, number of challenges and you've already kind of discussed in your the previous podcast that you already referred to the symbolism of summits, for example, all of these high level meetings with the symbolism and the signaling that goes on there. So it's beyond what the delegations are saying at the microphone, um, but it's about who's present and who are they talking to on the margins and how long are they staying? All of this means something in multilateral diplomacy. So the symbolism and the signaling, which is a form of theater that we talk about um, in the book that Eamon and I wrote with our co-author Amena, these are all really important to international relations and certainly elements of this are lost. You, you're gonna, you've already talked about that. But beyond that, as a former working level negotiator, my main concern was about the communication, uh, physical communication. And I wrote about this in a recent blog post um, for the UN Association in, in the United States. So the biggest thing that was gonna be a challenge is the nonverbal communication that goes on around a negotiating table. Gestures, glances, knowing looks, facial expressions, just general body language uh, used to convey the message that, that diplomats are trying to get across. And all of these are important. It's in a, all of these are important communication tactics. Um, and they're just not possible on a shared screen uh, because no one quite knows who's looking at whom, um, if they're looking at anybody at all. <laughs> and signal delays in um, online communications can also kind of syncopate the timing for participants. So even if you're trying to use a facial expression to communicate with somebody, it, it might not come across in real time. Uh, additionally, there are the asides, all of the consultations that delegates usually have either you know, with experts on their delegation or other colleagues during a negotiation, uh, asking the expert on your delegation to speak up. Usually you just nudge them or elbow them. This isn't possible on a Zoom or on online either. So 
It's hard to consult pull asides that you do with other delegates. It's hard to publicly ask for a pull aside. These are important because maybe there's a sticky concern uh, in one of the texts you're negotiating. You want to chat offline about it, see if there's a way to solve it. And um, it's just impossible to do that. It takes a lot of extra work because you've got to outside the chat, the Zoom, the WebEx, whatever forum you're using, you've got to actually seek out those pull asides. Breaks. We talk a lot uh, when we do negotiations training about the need for the negotiator's pause. It's a really important concept. Um, so communicating to the chair or to the other delegates the need for a break. Maybe you need a break, a mental break, maybe a consultative break. Maybe you need to do that pull aside now. Um, or a biological break, as an ambassador I used to work with called them. These are just more difficult and awkward to request when you're online um, staring at, at, at a screen. So in addition to the communication component, there's this logistical piece, just asking for breaks and structuring the, the time. Uh, also in the category of logistics, multitasking, right? That's a whole new level now that we're all online. We're doing the video chat and the WhatsApp chat. And maybe we're also looking at our email to see if there are any new instructions and we're trying to take notes. And just the sheer amount of juggling that a negotiator now has to do is, is just a huge challenge. So we've all experienced versions of these difficulties and it certainly changes how a multilateral negotiation works. Just being present in that space becomes a challenge now. Maybe if I can just jump in here, you know, it's, it's lovely to hear Rebecca talk about it because sometimes it can be so frustrating on the ground. You are in, logged in into what we call the Interprofi system. So we don't use Zoom um, at the WTO. We use the system called Interprofi. And, and in it, you can't see anybody else except for that one person who happens to be taking the floor at the point in time. And so when I'm taking the floor, I can't see the reactions of everybody else. And an important part of diplomacy is connection, right? Connecting with your audience so that you know that they understand what you are, you are trying to get at at the same time that they can relate to you. But here you can't hear any humor or, or the reactions to your jokes. You can't tell if uh, what you were trying to, to get across got through. And, and that's a big part of the loss of, of diplomacy. Uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of things have, have moved online. So we have WhatsApp diplomacy, we have now email diplomacy. So what we do among ourselves is to share information through WhatsApp. And the reason why I want to highlight this is because we're talking about corridor diplomacy. And corridor diplomacy has got many upsides to it. One of it is about problem solving, right? So at the end of a meeting, it is useful to, to sort of grab the other party, which you might have disagreed with, and says, hey, that, that concern or that issue that you talked about, can I just understand what you were getting at? But now you have to go to the interprofile system and, and you can send them a message, but they don't need to reply. And you don't know whether they're looking at it or they're just ignoring you on purpose. And, and that's one of, one of the laws. But the second point about the corridor diplomacy is intel gathering. And that's a big part of what diplomats do because you want to get the information to give your HQ a heads up to sort of prepare on the ground to make sure that there are no you know, breakers out of fire or, or a problem that, that you could not actually preempt and manage ahead of time. And so here is where Many of us have now utilized WhatsApp diplomacy by creating groups. And that's become very useful. Previously, you might have a, a bilateral WhatsApp chat with your friend from, in this case, Rebecca from the US. But now what we do is to even create, say, a ladies group 
or group between two regions, you know, one us from Asia and, and another from a different region. And that has helped to, to build bonds. You know, some of them use it to, to send jokes, you know, or to send scenery pictures on, on over the weekend. But at the end of the day, it's, it's finding barriers to break down some of the problems of diplomacy, which we now have in the COVID era. So I, I think you've both touched on something that uh, is yet to be written about, is yet to be perhaps touched on, and that's because it's at the very forefront of this issue. Uh, Yumin and Rebecca, you both talked about adaption. And I find it interesting reading through the blog you both wrote, um, the piece Rebecca wrote, and of course, the host of um, essays in the forum. The question I kept asking myself is, okay, if we were to do this podcast episode in six months, or if we were to see what the op-eds were saying in six months, I have no doubt that as human beings, as diplomats, as multilateral organizations, we would have adapted at an incredible pace. And already hearing you say, well, now we've, we've started making little WhatsApp groups to sort of be able to facilitate the, that social lubrication we've lost that maybe four months ago wasn't quite there, but that's how you've adapted now. When you're, when you're looking now to the, the, the hurdles you see in front of you or the, perhaps the, the nitpicky issues you haven't quite solved yet or you haven't adapted to yet, what do you think uh, is, is next to come in terms of that adaption? Because obviously we don't know, we, we can't prepare for, although you know, it seems to be with this vaccine that something might come in terms of a conclusion of this, but we can't prepare for that per se. We still have to conduct our business as usual and continue to adapt to it. What do you think is that next adaption? Sure, I would jump in first. This is a tough question. <laughs> so one of the things that we haven't really adapted to is how do you knock out agreement on a difficult issue without doing it in person, right? So there's a lot of things that you can solve virtually, but when you are negotiating a text, you usually come to a point where you have what you think may be the solutions, but you need the people in the same room to say, to, to not just to create pressure, but to create the context and the environment for everybody to say, this is what we can agree to or not, or this is how we want to draft it. Please include this word here, word there. And you can't have such a drafting exercise on a contentious issue virtually, in my opinion, thus far. And maybe some people have managed to do, do so, and, and I hope that they would share this with me because I am still learning on this. I've, what we are finding it difficult is, it is okay to do what we call clean text, right? On easier issues. But the moment you reach more complicated issues, how do you bring the people together to say, okay, this is what needs to be done in order for us to move forward. And the truth is in the diplomacy, it's good when we find solutions to easy issues, but it's the difficult issues, which is why in a way, you know, the WTO gets stuck. And, and that's where people say, well, maybe the system isn't working, but I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, part of it is, is just about finding ways at this point in time in, in what is in 2021, hopefully, on how we can work together to find creative solutions. And now in a creative format, because we are virtual. Yeah, and if I can add on to that, what I wonder about as well, um, in addition to that, and that is, Min has really hit the nail on the head, that is, I think, the key challenge. But what I also wonder about 
uh, is building relationships from scratch. I suspect for most delegates, most folks working um, in the international organization space, they probably knew on some level, most of their counterparts before the pandemic hit. So there were probably some versions of pre-existing uh, pre relationships, probably not in all cases, but there was probably somewhat of a group dynamic that they could build from. There was probably some kind of a relationship. Most people had probably met each other in person at least once. Again, probably not the case for 100%, but in many, many cases. So I wonder about how moving forward, negotiators can build relationships from zero when they've just shown up at a new post and everyone else has also just shown up at that post. So not only do they not know the norms of the institution, but they don't know each other. So I, I see that as an ongoing challenge as well. If I can just jump in on a story about that. So, so recently, one of uh, a colleague coming from another country, she just joined. And as you can imagine, it's been very difficult for her because she has not met anyone. So what she did was that she had a good conversation with a colleague from another country, right? So she spent time trying to get to know that, that, that one other lady. And through that, her friend now connected her to all the existing groups, whether it was through email or through WhatsApp. So that was her, her bringing her pool in, in a way, to the existing network. Because the truth is that you don't know where these, these networks lie. So you have to sort of tag on to somebody that can draw you into that piece. But I agree with you. I think it's a very difficult time for any new diplomat to come into this space because you don't get to bump into people in corridors and says, hey, you know, um, good, good to meet you. This is my card. And I, I hope we can continue having a relationship uh, on to discuss this particular issue that you might be interested in. Yeah, getting the context, I think, is just going to be really hard. I, th I think you, you've you both spoken to, I, I find it almost almost funny because I, I feel in a way everyone listening, regardless of what walk of life they, they, they sort of come from and what they do, that's something we can all relate to. And it circles back to what you talked about in the beginning in terms of the the awkwardness perhaps of online communication. And I mean, even if you know someone, it, it's going to be a bit awkward and janky let alone if you're trying to build a new relationship and you can't, I mean, personally, just speaking from uh, just my interpersonal experience of, of doing a lot of this online work and doing this podcast online, it's hard to get a feel for the other person just in a very human sense, let alone trying to communicate something meaningful, let alone trying to, as Min was saying, trying to actually make difficult decisions on very technical topics and subjects where every word matters. So, as we continue to adapt, uh, as diplomacy and its practitioners continue to adapt, I guess that might be the great metric. How, how is the fight against that going? And the three of us would not be the first to, to talk about the slowing of diplomacy or the process. And I know everything from, uh, from what I've read so far has talked about sort of a lethargy on the logistics side of things. Uh, negotiations being more arduous because, yeah, it takes more time to go over each point as each person goes through the call and says their statement or their their position, and then we cycle back to the beginning instead of more of a dynamic ping pong. So um, I'm curious to know, uh, perhaps on the more procedural front, I know the diplomacy often can be very structured, uh, and when we're personally in the room, that's one thing, but what about now that we're outside the room? Uh, what procedures are now going to be different, whether it's voting or drafting text, uh, what's happened to that? So that's an interesting one because 
many different organizations have spent quite a lot of time trying to figure out the procedures. And the reason why is many of these procedures were agreed to by consensus, right? So it took a lot of members and a lot of time to find agreement on these rules of procedure. And now legal teams have to go back to say, okay, if we now want to make, take a decision, can we do it virtually? Can we do so if there's no quorum? If we, how do you tell what the quorum is in such a case? Can you vote? right, if it's not in person. So this has been one of the tricky things. And yeah, and in a way, as what Rebecca and I used to talk about what negotiation is about, is about creative problem solving with friends. So it's good to know that some have come up with ideas, for example, written procedures as a way of taking a decision. That's one. There are others who, who might decide on how long that silence procedure may be, right? So it changes, as I said, from organization to organization. But I do want to make a point about, it, it's not all doom and gloom, right? Just because we've shifted to, to a virtual mode and at the same time, things are, are more difficult in a way. Some people say things have slowed down, but actually there are achievements this year alone. And I just want to point to the fact that in you know, April and May, you will see that you know, there were G20 statements coming out, but also at the WTO, we saw several statements being put together, one on, on COVID and tackling the multilateral trading system. We saw one about the issue of agriculture and how that relates to COVID. We, there was another statement about COVID and micro and small medium enterprises and how they can be supported. So people are also using this crisis as an opportunity to see what are the gaps that need to be tackled? How can we come together? How can we problem solve? What are the first things that we need to do? Similarly, there is a what we call an Ottawa group, which we are part of. It's, it's a, a group of 13 members led by um, Canada. There's now looking at, at trade and health, right? Even though we have COVID, how can members come together to find a way to use trade to enable better access to, to medical supplies? Another one that we have, I have been working on very much involved in is called the Joint Statement Initiative on e-commerce. So as you can imagine, COVID has accelerated digital transformation for many of us. We're talking about virtual here, virtual there. And what we're doing now at the WTO is negotiating e-commerce rules. And so Singapore is one of the co-conveners along with Australia and Japan to put together such rules that would enable a baseline for others to work off. And here, it's, it's worth noting that in this particular negotiation, they have now shifted in a way to negotiating in, in hybrid form or, or where possible. And where, what I mean by hybrid form is the WTO opened up when it was possible for, for some people to go in, but other people to log in online. And so previously, you can imagine many people had to fly in right, from all parts of the world just in order to come for these monthly meetings. But here now is an opportunity for people to, to log in from where they were, which means creating bigger access to this negotiation, having more input, having more buy-in. And that's, that's a very important negotiation. So uh, thank you. I mean, it, it's... It, it's refreshing almost to hear a positive, optimistic spin on on this situation. So I commend you for finding finding that side of the coin. And I kind of want to throw it back to Rebecca now. I'm kind of curious from your perspective. Obviously, despite you know the turmoil that has come from all this, what are positives that you have seen come out of this situation? 
Yeah, well, obviously, the substantive outcomes that Min just mentioned are great examples. And there are other examples as well of using the crisis as an opportunity. And I, I think that's kind of how we have to look at it because there is an opportunity there. Um, and there are certainly some other positives. For example, I have noticed um, more participants in some conversations. Some people physically couldn't participate before and so now they're able to show up online and that is absolutely great. Uh, I've also noticed very, I was really, really surprised by this, different counterparts speaking up. We had a meeting and in the previous meeting, it was pulling teeth to get people to talk. We were just trying to get people to say things. And online, for some reason, nobody hesitated. It was an amazing conversation. And I don't know what it was about that. For some reason, that particular group of people, and of course, it's going to vary depending on the group, right? Depends on who's around the table. But for that particular group, it was much more comfortable for them to be online. And so that was, that was a great surprise. So more inclusion, more participation, because in my view, at least up to a certain point, right, the more perspectives, the more voices around a table lead to a better outcome. So a more successful outcome almost always comes from more input up front. So I think that's a very positive development. Perfect. Thank, thanks so much for, for really building on, on, on what Min mentioned. And I think I want to, if, if you'll allow me, just extend this, this gleam of optimism and hope slightly further as we move to our conclusion. And at the end, I, I mean, this might just be my nature, but I think an end of a discussion like this is, is a nice moment to dream or to perhaps to zoom out. And combined with what has been uh, a real shock to the world, I think in moments of shock and crisis, we learn a lot about ourselves, right? We learn a lot about how we relate to people and how we relate to the world around us. So zooming out in a very you know, broad theoretical sense, what have you learned about diplomacy because of this, because of all the things we've talked about? What has been your great takeaway from this? I suppose, you know, we used to joke, as I said just now, right? Creative so negotiations is about creative um, problem solving with friends. But the key part is the friends, right? So how do you make friends in this diplomatic era when everything is virtual and you're not getting a chance to meet new people? And so I do think that one of the, the big takeaways is the relationships. That, you know, in, in diplomacy, there's so much paperwork. There's so, you know, there's resolutions and documents, reports and, and so forth. But at the crux of it, really, it's about the relationship building. And sometimes that gets lost. And so you can go into a, a meeting and people just read out their statements, which was given to, to headquarters, right? But we forget that there is more to, to engagement than just reading out prepared statements in meetings. It's really about listening to what the other party is saying, right? And going down their letter of inference. You know, we talk about a letter of inference because many a times co communication and conversations, people just talk at each other. And you wonder why no outcome comes about, right? So one of the important instruments that we have been highlighting is, is in everybody's way of thinking, you need to go down to understand what the assumptions are, right? And then when you listen and you know what the assumptions are, you, you talk about, oh, well, what is the information or database that you that you looked at in order for you to come with this conclusion. So after listening to that, then do you do you begin to take them up your ladder of inference to say, okay, well, this is my information database. This is where I put out information from. 
And this is the assumptions I applied, which is why my conclusion was slightly different to yours. Right? And, and these conversations are very important, but you need the relationship in order to have the foundation to begin having these complex and difficult conversations among people. Rebecca, is there anything you wanna, you wanna add to that in terms of a, a final takeaway? I'll, I'll give you maybe a moment to, to let it brew a little longer. What I've been, um, I've been thinking about this in terms of how can we use what we've learned during this time period moving forward to make multilateral organizations work better? Because that's ultimately, I mean, that's what both men and I are very, very interested in. That's what we wrote about in our book. That's what we teach about. You know, how does this, how do we make this process better? And men already said the most important thing, which is relationships, friends. You don't have to be friends with everybody, but that's absolutely essential. So she, she's, that was right on. Um, I think it's really interesting looking at sort of the framing of all of this. What, what components can we use to make the UN better? right, moving forward. I think there are certainly some elements of this experience we might move forward with even in a post-crisis world. I could see, for example, convening small virtual groups to hammer out final details online so that all the delegates from far-flung corners of the earth didn't need to travel to be in one place. Um, because I think we've proven, and this is supremely positive, we've proven through all of those substantive outcomes and a variety of other forums that negotiations online can work. It's probably not necessarily the best, but it can absolutely work. And we should use our resources across the board intelligently, right? Less travel would mean less greenhouse gases and save some money. And I mean, that's always a tricky calculation, but there, there are some good that we can probably harness from all of this um, that we've experienced this year. However, some of it's irreplaceable, right? Uh, you can't put two heads together over coffee like we talked about, those still outstanding challenges. Um, it's hard to have a one-on-one -on -one Zoom conversation with someone you've never met before. So the nonverbal communication is still gonna be a challenge. But that said, I think this opportunity for broader inclusion, broader engagement, higher participation should not be overlooked. And who knows what technology might be able to provide us with in the next year. Maybe it's gonna help us capture those lost elements that we've talked about today, meet those challenges that we still feel. Um, and we should take a good look at that and continue to anticipate more improvements, more innovation, and hopefully more and more creativity. Uh, because what has been accomplished this year is a testament to the adaptability, the flexibility, and the creativity of humankind and of the UN negotiator. And we really believe in that. Now, that is a, a strong sentiment I could not agree with more. You know, I, I never quite know where these conversations end up when I have them, but I think, I think that's a fitting concluding note. I think one thing that uh, has all tied us together in this is our mutual desire to figure it out and to continue to progress and continue to, to make positive change and help each other out amongst it all. And whether that manifests itself in diplomacy in increased inclusion or realizing, hey, maybe people are participating and voices are participating that before were neglected. And no matter what happens with a what is hopefully a momentary pandemic, we've actually learned something about the way we were operating before. And whether, as Min was saying, whether it's about, hey, actually, you know what, those relationships, those little coffees we used to have that we perhaps took for granted or didn't realize what it actually meant when you were starting fresh in a role to have those little moments. Well, actually, maybe now we realize how important that is. And maybe we should emphasize that 
uh, in the next six months and six years to come. So um, I think you've both added uh, some incredible insight into what is actually happening during COVID, but more importantly, I think where we can go after it and what we can take with us as a result. So I both thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share uh, and to educate. I've certainly learned a lot myself and I'm sure anyone listening has as well. So I really sincerely appreciate that. Obviously anyone who is listening and I would hope that after listening to last episode and this one, uh, we've been able to add a lot of insight on diplomacy and COVID, how that works. I highly recommend um, you check out the, the Diplomacy After COVID forum. Also, I know uh, Rebecca and Min both cited uh, a couple times the blog they wrote, which is titled Diplomacy in the Virtual World, and that's available with the Women's Foreign Policy Group. That's a really great practical read on, on, on some of the things we're talking about. So thank you both so much for contributing uh, today to the podcast. And not only will the Hague Journal of Diplomacy, but everyone listening and, and uh, everyone outside there will, will benefit from what we've had to say. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And of course, as always, we'll see you next time.